Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. When you think of the healthcare workforce, nurses and doctors are probably the first people who come to mind. But there are actually more personal care aides in the U.S. than physicians. And together, home health aides, nursing assistants, and personal care aides comprise one-fifth of the U.S. healthcare workforce. Now, these workers provide essential supports to people who face limitations in basic activities such as eating, bathing, and moving around. As the U.S. population ages, the demand for home health and personal care aids is projected to increase by nearly 1.2 million additional jobs by 2030. The changing size and employment of the personal care workforce is the topic of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm here with Dr. Esther Friedman, Research Associate Professor at the University of Michigan. Dr. Friedman and colleagues published a paper in the December 2021 issue of Health Affairs investigating state-level changes in the nursing home and home care workforce between 2009 and 2020. Now, while almost all states experienced an increase in the overall size of their home care workforce, most saw a decrease in their nursing home workforce relative to the number of people who need these services. We'll discuss these findings and more during our episode. Dr. Friedman, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, Let's uh, start by framing out what it is you studied. You use the term direct care workers. This may not be familiar to everyone. What do you mean by a direct care worker? Who are these workers? What role do they play in the healthcare system? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and thank you for having me and for the introduction. Before we start, I just wanted to take a minute to acknowledge my, my RAND co-authors and the health affairs editorial team. And I also wanted to especially acknowledge our, the, our funder for this work, uh, the, the National Institute of Health provided funding, but of course, any opinions I state are my own and not necessarily reflective of those of NIH. Um, so you asked about direct care workers, and yeah, I guess there's some some jargon that I use, so I'm glad you're giving me the chance to define it up front. So when we use the term direct care worker in our study, we refer to the key paid caregivers who support people who need help with everyday activities, either because of a disabling condition or old age. I want to emphasize that we're studying the paid workforce here. We all know that so much of the care for the population with disabling conditions comes from family and friends who aren't paid a dime. That's not something we get into in this study, but it's important to acknowledge who is, but also who isn't included in this definition. The direct caregivers we're looking at include personal care aides, home health aides, and nursing assistants. Personal care aides and home health aides generally work in people's homes or other community-based settings like assisted living communities, for instance. The direct care workforce also includes nursing assistants. Um, Those workers typically work in institutional settings like nursing homes. They help feed, bathe, dress, and provide basic care to residents in those settings. Taken together, the direct care workforce makes up about a fifth of the entire U.S. healthcare workforce. This is such an important group to keep an eye on as the baby boomers age because this workforce is crucial for meeting the care needs of older adults and people with disabilities. So we're going to return to this theme a few times, but what you're describing is critical support for people who have functional limitations, and there's a division between those who provide those services to people in their homes and and those who are doing them for folks living in a nursing home. 
And uh, that division is important because we know that most people would prefer to live in the community. And so the workforce needs to be there to support people living at home. Your study occurs in the context of longstanding efforts at what we often refer to as rebalancing. And again, just to get the jargon out of the way at the front end of this, um, what do we mean by rebalancing? Why is that relevant to this study? And sort of where are we in our progress toward rebalancing the system? That's a really great great question. Um, There's been a push for several decades to move long-term care services away from institutions like nursing homes and into the community and homes when appropriate. This shift is typically referred to as rebalancing. So balancing away from institutions and into the community. Uh, You know, most people, as you mentioned, most people want to grow old at home. And these home-based services provided by the direct care workforce that we've been talking about allows them to do so. Medicaid has been at the forefront of many of these efforts uh, with things like home and community-based waivers, and they've had other grants and financial incentives to provide funding for services at home for people who need it. And in in terms of where we are in our progress, I would say these programs have been fairly successful um, starting in something like 2013 or 2014, I believe, Medicaid home and community-based spending um, began to exceed institutional spending. So we're definitely seeing a shift towards home-based care. But what's important to note is that some states have been more successful at rebalancing their long-term services and supports than others. Uh, you know, all Medicaid, all state Medicaid programs must provide institutional care, but there's an enormous amount of flexibility and the extent to which states provide optional home and community-based services, uh, including both in the eligibility criteria, so who can get these services, and also in the types of services these packages offer. Uh, I I, I should add that Medicaid's most recent rebalancing program, the Balancing Incentives Program, or BIP, which was established as part of of the Affordable Care Act, was was designed to boost home and community-based spending specifically in states with low level of spending relative to their overall long-term care portfolio. And it was this program and other state differences that we've been seeing that motivated us to do this study, to look at workforce trends overall and in different settings, but also thinking about these state differences and what's been happening across states over time. So here we are, the population is aging, the need for these types of services is increasing. We're also, decades into uh, efforts to shift services and supports out of nursing home care, which was remains an entitlement within Medicaid to, as you described, these home and community-based services that are highly variable across states. You need the appropriate workforce to support this in addition, of course, to many other ingredients. Let's look at the top-level findings of the study. What's happening to the overall size of this workforce, and what do you see in terms of where they're providing these services? That gets at uh, the crux of our study. In our study, we, we showed that between 2009 and 2020, so you know, more than a, you know, a, a decade of recent data, the most recent data we could, we could gather, uh, nearly all states saw an increase in the size of their home care workforce. During the same time period, uh, most states experienced a decrease in their nursing home workforce size, although a handful did experience an increase in the nursing home as well. 
Uh, so it wasn't quite as, as, as universal as the change in the home care workforce. Um, there was also considerable variation in the magnitude of change across states. We also looked at what we refer to as substitution. So did states that increase their home care sizes also decrease nursing home sizes? And, and we did find the substitution, but it wasn't one-to-one. The home care workforce has been increasing at a substantially faster rate than the nursing home workforce has been declining. Uh, in fact, between 2009 and 2020, there was an increase of about 53 home care workers on average per 1,000 people with disabilities, compared to a decrease of about nine nursing home workers. I, I want to focus in on something you just referred to, which was uh, the number of these workers compared to the number of people with disabilities. So when we're measuring the workforce, of course, we can count people. But what we really want to know is, can we meet the need? And part of what your study does is look at the number of workers relative to an estimate of the number of people who might need those services. Can you say a little bit more about how you thought about the need for services side of the equation? Yeah, that's such a great point. And I should have clarified uh, that the study is mostly focused on the supply of care as measured through the size of the direct care workforce. But it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to compare the workforce size in a small state to that in a larger state or with a smaller population with disabilities to one with a more significant population with disabilities. Obviously, they would have different size long-term care workforce, direct care workforce. So to compare apples to apples, so to speak, we adjust workforce size relative to the size of the population uh, with, with disabling conditions for which they might require some of this direct care. To capture this, we used population-based data on the number of people in each state who report having difficulty uh, with two things, with, with either self-care or, or independent living. So this isn't a perfect measure, but it lets us do a better job at comparing the direct care workforce for states of different sizes and with different size population with care needs. So we're basically adjusting the workforce size, uh, which is our numerator by denominator that accounts for the size of the population with disabilities. Now, as you noted, uh, you saw trends, but you also saw a high degree of variability across states. I want to dive into some of those differences and what might account for them. We'll do that after we take a short break. What does it mean for health system leaders to pursue a culture of health? To help answer this question, Health Affairs launched Leading to Health, a series supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. With these journalist-written articles, we examine some of the most innovative health systems out there. Health Affairs recently collected these lessons on a new, easy-to-navigate resource page. Visit healthaffairs.org leading to health and stay up to date on the latest reporting and research. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Esther Friedman, who wrote a paper published in Health Affairs about the size of the workforce serving people at home and in nursing homes uh, to meet their personal care needs. Before we went to the break, uh, you described to us that the size of the workforce relative to the need has grown overall, but that the rate of growth and the composition between those serving people at home and in nursing homes has changed differentially across states. Now, I know when you look at state-level variation, you can find lots of different dimensions, but I wonder if you could focus on those that stood out to you the most, where you saw the differences across states in these trends. 
Yeah, thank you, Ellen. Um, as I mentioned, we observed considerable state differences in the size of the direct care workforce and the rate of growth in the home care workforce in particular. But one, one question of key interest to us was also whether states were becoming more or less um, similar over time in, in their home care workforce size. So whether states were converging over time, they may have started out more different in, in terms of their sizes, but maybe that gap has been shrinking over time. But what we found was alarming. The gap between states with the largest home care workforce size relative to those with the smallest has actually been growing with time. There was already a large gap in 2009, the baseline year of our study, and it was even larger in 2020, the last year of our study. So the leading states continue to propel ahead, uh, while the others aren't, aren't quite catching up, and if anything, are, are lagging further behind. Now, I know your study that we published was not a, an analysis of the effects of specific policies and how that determines the size of the workforce. But I want to draw upon your broader expertise here. Um, you mentioned, of course, the central role that Medicaid plays. Uh, there are also other labor policies at play that determine workforce size. So let's, let's break this down into a few different domains. Uh, maybe let's start with things that are outside of Medicaid. If you think about the policy levers states have, that might affect the supply of direct care workers? What comes to mind? Uh, what do you think states that see themselves with an in, in inadequate supply uh, might uh, want to focus on or consider if they're trying to address a uh, workforce shortage in this area? Yeah. So, you know, there are some very basic structural problems with the direct care workforce that, that keep it stunted and, and could be preventing it from growing to the size that we're going to need in the future. Um, we already know that there's a lot of turnover in this workforce. It's very hard uh, to incentivize people to become direct care workforce and stay, stay in the direct care workforce. Uh, and, and some of that is, is because of very basic workforce issues. There need to be more opportunities for promotion and, and higher salaries to keep people in this workforce and recruit new people to join so that we have uh, an adequate supply of, of care with time. And, and some states have, have been better at this than others. Some states have been strengthening the direct care workforce. They've been expanding this workforce by making jobs more appealing, by providing wage and benefit enhancements, providing career ladder initiatives, such as training, opportunities for mentoring, um, and, and giving people in the direct care workforce credentials, credentialing this workforce. And I think a lot of efforts along these lines will be very important for expanding this workforce with time. Let's add on to that uh, policy specific to Medicaid. As the dominant payer, certainly it uh, has the authority to do things like determine payment rates. Uh, but what else is involved in making sure or doing what's possible to increase the supply of this uh, workforce? Yeah, and just just to be to clarify, uh, only people who are Medicaid eligible can receive these types of direct care services through Medicaid. So that's typically low-income individuals. Uh, but Alan, you're you're totally right that Medicaid is in fact the primary public payer of long-term care. In fact, Medicaid accounted for more than forty percent of spending on long-term care, uh, at least as of several years ago, uh, which is the most recent estimate I have off the top of my head. Um, as I mentioned before, Medicaid has been implementing programs and providing incentives to increase 
home-based care, uh, both to move people with disabilities out of institutions and into the community, and also to help keep people in the community. And these have made a big difference, but there likely need to be even more efforts. And, and I would go so far as to say that efforts uh, may need to be targeted specifically to states that are lagging in their provision of direct care, because we see these huge disparities. Uh, you know, programs that are more global and universal could be helpful, but there are some states that are going to need some extra efforts, and it's important to figure out, you know, what those efforts should be, what those states need in particular. I was struck by your comment that, of course, Medicaid policy only affects uh, services paid for for people who are eligible for Medicaid. I'm trying to imagine myself as an employer. Uh, concerned about workforce retention, about uh, presenteeism, and knowing that I probably have a fair number of employees who have family members in need of these services. Um, my guess is that employers probably think of policies related to personal care as pretty far from uh, the center of their uh, business. But it sounds to me like this could be quite relevant. If, if you were talking to an employer right now in one of the states that seem to be on the short end of the, the diverging trends that you described, um, what do you suggest to them? Wow. Okay. That's a, that's a really great question. Um, you know, you're right. <laughs> this definitely is, is relevant to employers, and I'm pretty sure they're not thinking all that much about it. I mean, a lot of, a lot of employees are also providers of unpaid care. So, I, I, you know, that's not the focus of this study. But I think that's, you know, maybe we can go a little bit away from what I'm talking about here. I mean, I think that's a place where employers have, have maybe started to appreciate that if they give their employees, you know, more time off, uh, you know, more, more paid time off, you know, more flexible hours, that their employees who are providing care for family members or need to be there maybe to supervise other care for family members have the flexibility to do so. So I think there is more of an awareness that, uh, you know, family members, you know, people have to help their family out and have to help with other services as well. But I think it's a really interesting idea to think about how, how employers could maybe be, be contributing more or thinking more about the paid care workforce and providing paid help to family members. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how that would work, but I, I think that's a really interesting suggestion. And I want to be clear, I threw that as a bit of a curveball. You also mentioned the notion of of growing divergence between the states that had the highest supply and, and the lowest. I'm interested in the evolution of rebalancing and thinking that perhaps uh, the states that were earlier to the game of of trying to make these shifts have started to uh, have had maybe a little longer time to realize the challenges they face on having an adequate workforce and potentially thinking about some of the policies that might be responsive. Um, so is it possible we're at a stage where the leading states are experimenting with some novel policy ideas here, and as we learn what works, the other states will be able to follow in and, and catch up? That could be. Yeah, maybe... maybe um... There, yeah, maybe there'll be some some catch up either by observing what's happening in successful states. There may also be some catch up uh, just because things take time. There have been some recent rebalancing and other programs, uh, and 
you know, it may just take longer. Some of these uh, Medicaid programs were about improving infrastructure. So it may, it may take several years to even see that impact. So, you know, the study is we looked at what we can until now, but, but trends can change, things can change. I think it's important to kind of see where, see where we're heading, but we also have to make sure we, you know, don't get too comfortable. Uh, there, there's likely work to be done as the population ages. Well, yes. I mean, I noted at the outset from your paper this notion that we're going to need more than a million new workers in this area. So when you look overall at trends in aging, trends in disability, and the findings you reported here as well as your other work, what do you think about how we're poised as a country to have an adequate workforce for the aging population in the coming decades? Well, that's the million-dollar question. That's a big question. Uh, in this in this study, we you know we're seeing some growth in the home-based workforce across nearly all states, uh, but it's very difficult to say whether this will be sufficient to meet the needs of the aging population. I, there's other work out there that suggests uh, that you know it likely is not. Um, I think the contribution we're making here, what we're showing, is that while we need to think about meeting needs at the national level, it's also important to look at what's happening among the states. You know, we're showing large differences in states in the rate of growth in the home care workforce, even accounting for the size of the population with disabilities. Um, even more importantly, we see that the gap between the states with the smallest home care workforce and those with the largest have been growing over the time period we examined. Um, what this means is that we're seeing even more disparities in the supply of the home care workforce now than we did a decade ago. And I guess I would say, you know, we, talk, we, we did, talked about the fact that some of these trends can change. Anything can change. I can, I'm only looking at, you know, a small time period, but this doesn't bode very well for the future if these trends persist. And, you know, we're not the first ones to look at state differences. There's so much work out there that shows that where you live affects what healthcare resources um, you have access to. And, and what we're showing is that in the absence of some kind of big change or policy intervention, people in some states will likely be better able to age at home than, than those in others. Um, and that suggests that there could be, could be disparities in, in access to long-term care, the same as, as other kinds of health care across states. Well, as we wrap up our conversation, uh, it's hard to talk about uh, nursing homes in this era without thinking about how COVID spread through those homes and how that really changed everything, including people's feelings about living in these congregate settings, as well as the staffing issues in those settings. Um, as you look forward on your own research agenda, I'm curious, uh, what's the next topic uh, on your mind? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think there are some significant questions about, you know, the setting where care will take place, um, you know, there, there may be an, an, an added COVID effect on, on where care will be happening, whether people will be utilizing nursing homes as much um, given COVID. I think there'll be a lot of reform in nursing homes. I also, uh, you know, I also do work on the family caregivers, this unpaid workforce of care. And there's a lot of, there's going to be a lot of demand on family members to provide help as well. And the shift to the home, uh, care at home, doesn't actually relieve as much of the burden on family members as we might think, because there are spouses who are living in the home. Maybe their maybe their obligations, maybe the kind of care that they provide will change, 
But I think we we have to think about all of this together. We have to think about the family members, the home home care workforce, the nursing home workforce, and even the healthcare providers as as a team, as a team supporting somebody in their in their care in their care journey that can be many years. Well, it's uh, great to have this conversation with you about such an important issue, an issue that affects people very uh, deeply and um, is of great concern given the uh, needs for receiving these services and the, the demographic trends in the country. I really appreciate the work that went into the study and uh, the insight you were able to provide in this conversation. Thank you so much for being my guest on a Health Policy. Thanks, Alan. This was fun. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.